Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 4 through 16. That's the text this morning. I mentioned last week, and I'll just say in a couple summarizing sentences here, that Solomon began the book of Ecclesiastes, which I think is basically a journal. Uh, He is writing later in life now, looking back, turning back, reflecting on life in his younger years. And Solomon began the book of Ecclesiastes talking about uh, what he saw out there. Uh, about all of his observation, uh, what he saw out there, and all the places he was looking out there for satisfaction and fulfillment and meaning and purpose, something to attach his life to that was durable and lasting. And last week I mentioned that Solomon is reigning in his focus, that his eyes are beginning to transition inward now. So instead of looking outward, he's beginning to look inward, and he's making some observations about what he sees. And what he's going to see this morning is that the human heart is full of greed. The human heart is full of jealousy. The human heart is full of envy. The human heart is full of autonomy. We love to be alone, even the most social among us. We don't, we don't think that we have much need for each other. But the Bible tells us a different story. God has made us to be social and relational creatures, and we need one another. And so Solomon is going to deal with some of these issues, some of these heart struggles, these heart issues uh, that we all come face to face with at some time or other in our lives. I've titled the message this morning, The Struggle is Real, and it is. Each of us struggles, redeemed, yes, in Christ, if we know him savingly, yet at the same time being redeemed, sanctified, while at the same time being sanctified, completely holy, while at the same time being made practically holy. We're in the middle of this already, but not yet. And uh, I pray that the Lord would deal with us this morning uh, as he so chooses, as we come face to face with his breathed out word, which is useful and profitable for teaching, correcting, training, and correction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So with that being said, let me encourage you to stand one last time. I know you've just gotten cozy. Let's read our text together. These are the words of Solomon, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 4 through 16, and these are the words that he pens. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift his fellow up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two can withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken." Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice, for he went from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom he had been poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Solomon has put a number of things under the microscope since we began in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Solomon's going to put four things under the microscope this morning in our text They are greed in the human heart. He's going to put the human heart under the microscope, and he's going to tell us what he sees there. 
And he's going to put our struggle with contentment under the microscope. He's going to look at our relationships and view them. And then lastly, he is going to look at the fickle nature of popularity. And he's going to put it under the microscope. And at the end, he's going to tell us, brothers and sisters, don't live for it. Don't live for it. It's fleeting at best. If you're taking notes, would encourage you to do so. I think you'll listen better if you do. Write this down. Point number one, the struggle with competition. The struggle with competition. Look back at your Bible there, specifically verses four through six. Solomon says, then I saw that all toil, we said some weeks back that toil is a, is a general word for work. It's, it's what you have ambition to do. It's what you set your hands out to do. It's your work. And so Solomon says, then I saw all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his nature, or of his neighbor. This also is vanity, is striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. So verses 4 through 6 here, these first handful of verses, they are Solomon's observations concerning the working world. This is good because most of us work. And so Solomon's observations on the working world hopefully will prove to be very helpful for us all. If you can remember back to chapter 2, Solomon told us back in chapter 2 that work was a gift from God. Work was a gift from God. As a matter of fact, don't turn there. Let me just refresh your memory. He said, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. This also I saw was from the hand of God. And so work, though I think Solomon struggled with work, seeing vanity in it, did also see it as being a gift from God. God has given man work to do. And this goes all the way back to the garden, right? God gave Adam a job. His job was to tend, tend the garden. It's interesting that that same Hebrew word tend was given to the Levites later as to how they were to shepherd the people. Okay? Work. Work is good. It is a gift from God. The problem is that like any other of God's blessings, the blessing of work can be distorted and is often distorted by sin. And so in these first three verses, Solomon illustrates this fact by giving us a snapshot of three distinct individuals. You'll notice as we progress through our text this morning that we've got kind of several stories and a few kind of proverbial statements sandwiched in between. And so in this first story here, in this first section of the text, Solomon highlights or illustrates three types of people, three distinct types of individuals. You might want to write this down in the white space there. A, he draws our attention to the extreme competitor, the extreme competitor. Look at verse 4, then I saw all the toil and all the skill in work. It came. Came from where? It came from a man's envy of his neighbor. Solomon sees much of our motivation, much of, of what thrusts our work forward as being a high endeavor fueled by or mixed with a craving to outshine others. I don't know about you, but I see myself reflected here in the text. I mean, these aren't the things that we talk about, but in our heart of hearts and our mind of minds, we oftentimes think about how we can get ahead, how we can outshine, how we can be seen as the one who's important in our job, as the one who is more high profile, so to speak. This is all motivated by a man's envy of his neighbor. Even in friendly rivalry, this, this, uh, this may play a larger part than we can think. You see, we can bear to be outclassed for some of the time and by some of the people, but not too regularly or not too profoundly. We don't like to be outclassed. We don't like to be one-upped. We don't like to be outshone. We don't like for someone to be better than us or to have more than we have, to make more than we make. To have a title that is grander than our title. We struggle with that in our heart of hearts. To feel oneself a failure is to discover in one's soul the envy that Solomon detects here. 
Envy is powerful, and it is a destructive influence in the human heart. Envy is like battery acid. It will make Swiss cheese out of your heart. We struggle with it. Friends, let me just remind you that the seeds of every sin under the sun reside in every single one of our hearts, and all those seeds need to grow is to be watered and given attention to. They're already there. All those seeds are already there. Let me just caution us to be mindful of envy and greed. In Proverbs chapter 6, Solomon writes this. He says, For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. It's jealousy. You have something, and I want what you have. Likewise, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30 Solomon says, a tranquil heart gives life to flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. That's what envy does. It makes the bones rot. Rivalry has yet to produce meaningful, fruitful relationships. Instead, it tears relationships apart because it sees others not as an individual to love, but rather a competitor to be conquered. That's what envy does. That's what jealousy does. It doesn't see another person as an individual to be loved or an individual to be served. It sees another person as a competitor to be conquered. While some economists have identified the competitive urge of self-interest as the engine that drives a capitalist economy, Solomon sees a deeper motivation that springs from the sinfulness of the human heart. What Solomon is saying here is that one of the reasons that we work so hard is to get what our neighbor has. We have a phrase for this, right? Keeping up with the, with the Joneses. Right? We've got to keep up with the Joneses. Oh, my neighbor has a nice new 26-foot cigar boat. I sure would like to have one of those. Or my, my neighbor... Uh, just had all of his grass ripped up and had brand new, green, fresh sod laid down. Boy, my yard doesn't look so great anymore. I would love to have what he has. It's jealousy. It's rivalry. And Solomon is saying that this is oftentimes the motivator for our hard work. This is, this is why we keep on keeping on. This is why we grind it day in and day out, because we don't want to be seen as having less. We have this impulsive urge to keep up with the Joneses. We want what our neighbor has. We have this gnawing desire to get more. But wanting something for myself that God has given to someone else, Solomon says, is vanity and a striving after the wind. And here's the bottom line. We work and work and work. We put in all the effort and all the blood, sweat, and tears to get what our neighbor has. And if and when we finally get it, we will soon learn that whatever it is doesn't make us any happier. It doesn't make us any happier. We will believe the lie, hook, line, and sinker, until we have whatever it is. And then once we have it, we will eat the bitter fruit of its inability to produce the lasting, durable happiness and satisfaction. Envy, jealousy, covetousness, and greed, they all serve to motivate people to work with fervor and through long hours. Jealousy carries with it a positive connotation only in regard to a relationship between God and his people or between a husband and wife. That's the only place that jealousy carries with it a positive connotation. Do you not know the Lord is envious of you? The New Testament tells us. Just like a husband is to be jealous for the love of his bride. He is to have eyes for her and her only. She is to have eyes for him and him only. Just finished up pre-marriage counseling with a young couple that I'll marry here in just a handful of days. And just reminding them week in and week out, God has called you to be a one-woman man. Likewise, God has called you to be a one-man kind of woman. Don't get jealous. 
Don't get envious. Not only will it ruin your work, but it'll ruin your relationships as well and everything in between. Jealousy and envy divides families. It kills, Job 5 tells us. It harasses, Isaiah 11 tells us. It produces anger, Proverbs 6 tells us. Nothing good, nothing good. The second person Solomon describes here in the text is the idle dropout. This is the person who just tosses the towel in. This is the lazy sloth. This is the, I don't want to work. I don't think I should have to work. I think everything should be handed to me kind of individual. This is the exact opposite of the extreme competitor in verse 4. In verse 5, we see the idle dropout or the lazy sluggard, whatever you want to put there in your notes in verse 5. Look at verse 5 there. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Well, that's interesting language. Solomon constructs a contrast here. Perhaps you can see it clearly. I think most of us can as we look at verse 4 and we look at verse 5. In verse 5, Solomon points to the exact opposite extreme The envious individual of verse 4 displays too much ambition and too little rest. It's just the rat race of life. Just another day, another dollar. Day in and day out, he forsakes his family, he forsakes his friends. Everything he does is motivated by envy of what his neighbor has. He's got a radar lock on that, and he will sacrifice everything else to get it. He displays too much ambition and too little rest, whereas the indolent individual here in verse 5 exhibits too little ambition and excessive laziness. This must have been incredibly challenging for Solomon to observe because Solomon was anything but lazy. All right? He speaks often in the Proverbs about his disdain for laziness, disdain for slothful living. Folding the hands appears elsewhere in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it appears elsewhere in Proverbs. Uh, Solomon's writing here. So Solomon uses this phrase or this imagery of folding the hands. He uses it in Proverbs 6, chapter 10, and then again in Proverbs 24, verse 33. And it depicts the slumber of a lazy person. The person who folds their hands is the person who just sleeps. It's the lazy person. Lying on their beds, they fold their hands over their chest or their bosom as they they sleep. And we see that biblical wisdom writers condemn this as laziness, and it is characteristic with the fool. Matter of fact, Solomon is going to use that language right here. It's foolish. It's foolish behavior. To fold the hands is to, to lie idle. Let me take you back to Proverbs chapter 6. I mentioned that as a text here just a second ago. Proverbs 6, verses 10 through 11, Solomon says, A little sleep, a little slumber, perhaps a familiar verse to many of you, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. You see the idle dropout, the the lazy sluggard here in verse 5. This person disdains the frantic rivalry and the scramble for status and instead lives in total indifference. They just toss the towel in and just float along through life. Solomon calls this individual foolish. This is foolish. We we have a whole we have a whole generation that thinks this way in the world today. And it's not confined to a generation that has uh, come about relatively recently because Solomon tells us over and over and over again there's nothing new where? Under the sun. So what we're seeing is nothing new. We have a whole generation, though, that just is content to fold their hands and just to lazily uh, slide through life expecting that everything is given to them. They don't want to work. They don't even know what a work ethic is. To sweat is, is torture. To have to do anything with exertion is is, uh, you know, is, just can't, can't fathom doing that. To have to get up early and stay up late. Have a whole, a whole section of our culture today that just thinks that that is the way that the world turns. 
this individual here, this, this idle, uh, complacent person, is, is the picture of unwitting self-destruction. See, his idleness comes at an incredible cost. It eats away not only at what he has, Solomon tells us, but also at what he is. It erodes his self-control, his grasp of reality, his capacity for care, and in the end, his self-respect. Solomon says the desire of a sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 25. You see, workaholics are oftentimes warned that on their deathbed, they will not wish that they spent more time at the office. Perhaps some of you in here are workaholics. Perhaps some of you in here uh, have forsaken things that are of much greater importance for the nine to five. Well, let me just remind you that, that there aren't any workaholics who will lay on their deathbed who will wish that they had spent more time at the, at the office. But conversely, Solomon tells us here, or he warns us here, that certain people on their deathbed will wish that they had spent at least some time in the office. Work. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Finish this sentence. Idleness is... the devil's playground. Yeah. If you have nothing to do, let me assure you the evil one will put you to work. He'll give you something to do. And it won't be pursuing holiness or righteousness. It won't be loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, or loving your neighbor as yourself. It'll be how can you please you. Okay? Idleness is not good. It's not good. So Solomon gives us a wise alternative here in verse 6. Okay, we see the, the rat race individual in verse 4. We see the idle dropout, the lazy, lugger, the, the, the lazy sluggard in verse 5. And then we see Solomon give us the wise alternative in verse 6 here. Look at your Bible. He says, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. You see, the extreme competitor is motivated by envy, and so he's caught in the rat race, or she is caught in the rat race of life. There's no leisure time for rest. It's just work, work, work. This person spends every waking moment trying to get ahead. But the idle person here, the idle individual, is motivated by lazy pleasure and is headed for absolute destruction and self-ruin. This person wasn't productive. And in the end, and when everything is said and done here, the, the extremely competitive person and the one who tosses the towel in on life and just says, I'm going to float and live lazily, both end up incredibly unhappy. And so the question is, is there a good balance between the two extremes? And there is. There is a good balance between the two extremes. Look at your Bible here. The phrase, a handful of quietness, conveys a twofold thought of modest demands and inward peace. Modest demands, I don't have to have everything. Just, Lord, provide what I need and give me peace. It's the balance between clamorous grasping in verse 4 and the escapism of life, verse 5. It's important to note that the two words for hand in verse 6 are different. If you look at the verse there, better is a handful of quietness, verse 1, than two handfuls of toil. Well, the word for hand in both of these cases are different. The second word, chofen, the Hebrew word chofen refers to hands that are cupped to take as much as possible. These are the, the graspers. Everywhere, they're, everywhere they go, they're, they're grasping for more. That's the two handfuls of toil people. But the way of wisdom will attempt much, that's one handful, but not be overcome with greed, that's two handfuls. I, I was thinking in my study this week, uh, perhaps you've seen one of those game shows where, uh, where they start the show with a shopping spree. Sometimes it's one of those cooking shows where, where the, the individual, uh, the contestant's given a cart and they, they get to go through the, the, the grocery store prior and they, they grab everything they can. Um, you know, that's the picture here of this shopping spree. I mean, it's just this relentless grabbing for things. And it's, it's irrational oftentimes because you're not even thinking, do I need that? It's just fill my cart. It's just stuff. Put stuff in my cart. I'm not thinking as to the value or as to the need of it so much as I just want more. 
I just want more. That's that two handfuls there. The person with two handfuls is a two-fisted consumer, always grasping for more. There's a principle in life that we aren't born believing. Here's that principle. Sometimes less is more. Sometimes less is more. We're not born believing that, right? We're We're born believing that more is more. Accumulate, gather. Notice this person's hands aren't folded like the foolish, lazy individual. Instead, he works hard enough to make an honest living with a handful of what he needs in his life, and that's enough. That's enough. You know, oftentimes we think that we have enough uh, in a few settings in life. We think that we have enough when we're cleaning, right? Man, all this stuff, it's got to be dusted, all this stuff has to be cared for. All this stuff has to be maintained. So not only is there initial, the initial investment of whatever it is, but now it's got to be upkept. It's got to be maintained. We think that we have enough when we're cleaning. We think that we have enough when we're having a garage sale. And if none of those strike, uh, strike it for you here, we think that we have enough when we move. Right? When you've got to pick it all up and haul it all away, we certainly believe in that moment that we have enough. We wish that we had a little less, right? And so what do we do? We have a garage sale, right? But can we say that we have enough as we pass through the retail store or browse on Amazon? Can we say that we have enough? You see, a quiet person is peaceful and composed. Rather than engaging in the market rat race, there's a sense of satisfaction. I have everything that I need. And I would submit to you, friends, and I'm in the crosshairs here as well, that a quiet, peaceful, happy, contented life is of far greater value than the need to accumulate more. Be satisfied with what we have. And so we see this struggle with competition. I write this down, number two on your outline, and it, it flows quite nicely here, but it's the struggle with contentment. The struggle with contentment. Look back at your Bible. Look at verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never even asks the question, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So the question here is, is there anything worse than unbridled competition? Is there anything worse than envy and jealousy in the human heart? Well, Solomon points to the person here in verses 7 and 8 who has a lack of contentment. A lack of of contentment. Uh, Verses 7 and 8 picture the moneymaker as someone who is virtually dehumanized. For he surrendered to a mere craving and the relentless process of feeding it. Notice that he neither has friend, that's the no other, nor does he have family, that's the son or brother, for company or companionship. This is the loner, this is the single individual, Uh, not necessarily relationally single, doesn't have to be that way, but the person who isolates themselves and just works, 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 and is never content. This person is so intent on gaining more and more that he or she does not even stop to consider the question, why in the world am I even doing this? Why am I working so hard? Why do I get up so early? Why do I stay so late? Why am I doing what I'm doing and depriving myself, this individual says, of pleasure? I mean, why don't I work a little less and go to the beach a little bit more? This person here who lacks contentment can't even ask the question. Can't even ask the question. This person is so busy trying to accumulate more and more, they don't have time to enjoy what they have. And if they die, Solomon tells us that this person has no family, no friends to even inherit the wealth. And so, in other words, his labor or her labor is in vain. I mean, the state may get your stuff. There's no one else to to step forward and claim it. It may just go to an entity, 
The old Puritan preacher Jeremiah Burroughs once suggested that we find contentment by way of subtraction rather than by addition. Instead of raising your possessions to the level of your desires, how about bringing your desires down to the level of your possessions? It's a novel idea. It's been said that there are two ways to get enough. The first is to accumulate more, and the other is to desire less. There's two ways to get more. You can keep gathering and storing and putting it all in your barn, not realizing that this very night your life is going to be required of you, and then who will get all of your stuff? Or, or you can have enough by desiring less. Solomon reminds us in Proverbs chapter 15, he says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than with great treasure and the trouble that comes along with it. Better is a little. It's better. Again, we're not born thinking that. We're not born believing that. But the Bible tells us it's so. It is so. You see, there's a hidden cost associated with the pursuit of greed that is oftentimes overlooked. This person drives themselves so hard that they forego certain pleasures of life, rationalizing that they'll slow down later. At some point in life, they'll slow down and they'll take time to look at a sunset and smell the roses. All the while, they just keep on accelerating at this pace until they burn out, never comprehending this simple truth that the simple pleasures in life are best. Don't miss them. Don't miss them. This is a sad life that's being described to us, but we're all susceptible to it. Again, the seeds of greed reside in all of our hearts. The longing for more comes pre-written on the hard drive of our hearts as a result of the fall. That's why the flesh has to be crucified. That's why it's good, and Solomon's going to tell us later that we have some companions in our life They can help us see blind spots. Areas where we're missing the eternal because we're so focused on the temporal. And they can help set us back on the right set of tracks. Paul encourages us in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world Maybe we need to put that on the refrigerator or pin that to the cubicle or put it on the desk. But if we have food and clothing, with these things we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. That's the, that's the greed and uh, like battery acid making Swiss cheese out of your heart. Many senseless and harmful desires. They plunge people into ruin and self-destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and through it, this craving, many, many have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. It's hard. And in the end, when we, we, we think the whole time, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead, I'm getting ahead, or, or maybe even I, I'm, I'm getting some comfortability in my life, not knowing in the end that it comes with many dangers and snares attached to it. Find your contentment in the goodness and in the provision of God. There's a story of a little girl who once misquoted Psalm 23. Uh, Rather than saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, she said this, the Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want. There's a lesson there for us. Most of us, myself included, struggle with contentment. We have, but we want more. We aren't satisfied. So I pray that God would grant us the grace to be content with what we have. Number three, write this down. The struggle with companionship. The struggle with companionship. Look at verses 9 through 12. Solomon says this. He says, two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil or for their work. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls... And has not another to lift him up? Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two can withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. We see the struggle with companionship here in verses 9 through 12. 
This is actually a solution. A solution to the one who is sorrowful and lonely is found in the blessings of companionship. Instead of working to get ahead, instead of being greedy, why don't we start investing in the lives of others? Relationships, not things. People, not possessions. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their work, right? Two people, it's two extra hands, two extra, uh, or one extra brain, an extra pair of legs. I mean, there's multiplied work here. Solomon is just laying down a principle for us that we are not meant to be loners. We're not meant to go at life alone. We're not meant to live in isolation. Two are better than one. Two are better than one. Companionship isn't man's idea. It was God's idea. We need to remember that. Shortly after God created man, he said this. He said, it's not good for man to be alone. Genesis 2, 18. God made us to be social beings who function in community and in relationship with others. And this is a small, but it's a clear picture of the nature and the character of God. God is a social being. He exists in three distinct persons, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he fashioned man after his own image to reflect his very nature. And the reality is that we do not function well alone. We don't. We don't function well alone. We weren't made to function well alone. And so what Solomon does here is he identifies three examples of, of solitary existence in contrast to companionship, in order to make his point. And all three of uh, Solomon's examples here, or the illustrations that he is going to give us, arise from the experience of travel in the far ancient Near East. Okay? The first illustration he gives us refers to falling in a pit or a ravine, uh, verse, cha- or verse 10 there. The second illustration... Uh, describes attempts to keep warm outdoors during the cold of night, and the third refers to robbers encountered along the road, verse 11. And the lessons that are learned here are not restricted to travel. A helper, a comforter, and a defender apply to many of life's settings. And so look, let's look at each individually here just for a brief moment. You might want to write this down in your white space there. A, we see the frightful paths. The frightful paths. Look at verse 10. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no other to lift him up. And so you have this traveler here who's traveling along the way, uh, and there, there are lots of dangers along his journey. Uh, there, there are steep ravines, there are cliffs, oftentimes the, uh, the fields were covered in large stones, uh, people would oftentimes build pits that were used either as cisterns for water or for other use, the storage of dry goods that an individual, if they weren't paying attention, could fall into, and so to journey was to incur uh, significant, significant potential mishaps. Okay, roads in Palestine, they weren't paved, they weren't leveled. Uh, You didn't go to sleep like you did when they were repaving uh, King's Highway here and wake up in the morning and there's fresh black asphalt on King's Highway. No, that's not what the roads look like. They were rocky, lots of ravines. It wasn't uncommon even for the most experienced traveler to stumble or even fall into a pit. Falling into a pit while you were alone could be fatal, especially if it happened at night when the passerbys would have been few. No one to help you. If you broke a bone or injured yourself in some way and you were left there by yourself all night, all the cold night, by the way, we'll see here in just a moment, it could mean certain death for you. But we should note here that the Hebrew isn't confined to physical mishaps. Uh, slips of judgment and other types of, quote, falling by the wayside are also in need of a helping hand. If we are susceptible to physical falls, brothers and sisters, how much more does this principle apply when our spiritual walk is in need of restoration? I mean, the Christian life is one where there are potential mishaps along the road, along the journey, where we can fall into sin here 
Well, we have blind spots over there. We all have blind spots, and we all need someone to help us when we get stuck. Paul encourages us in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, if anyone is ensnared, if anyone is trapped, if anyone has fallen in the pit, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourselves, because you too could be tempted. In other words, trying to pull your brother or your sister out of the pit, you can also be pulled in. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How grateful we should be for a good Christian friend who can help us to walk straight, who can help us to walk righteously, who can help us to walk on the highway of holiness. And so my question to you, brothers and sisters, is do you have such a friend? Do you have such a neighbor who cares for your soul to the degree that if you fall, A, they will even notice, and two, that they will offer aid and help you in your time of trial? Who do you have in your life that can and will, that is, a person who is equipped and a person who is willing to help you when you fall? I I hope that for each of you, there are one, maybe two, potentially three. You don't need everybody, but you do need a couple of individuals who will help you when you spiritually stumble. The second picture that Solomon gives us here is an individual on a cold night. On a cold night. We saw frightful paths. In verse 11, we see cold nights. Look there at your Bible again. If two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? This second illustration pictures a frosty night without adequate heat. It's possible that this verse applies to or directly relates to the marriage relationship, the husband-wife relationship, but I would submit to you that it's not confined to that. You see, travelers in Israel's cold nights oftentimes slept in close proximity because the only way to be warm alone was to carry extra blankets, and that would add to your load. And so instead of carrying extra blankets, two individuals would lie down in close proximity. They would share body heat. They would share warmth. The idea here is of companionship in adversity, temptation, and grief. You see, metaphorically, the body warmth which friends give to each other represents the solace and encouragement that one gets from a friend, particularly a friend, or specifically a friend, who shares the same hardships. It's a person who can relate, a person that can come alongside, a person that can encourage, a person that can build up, a person that can breathe fresh wind into your sails. You see, we need physical warmth, we need companionship, we need emotional warmth, we need good friendship. Our culture today does not know a whole lot about good biblical friendship. We live in relative isolation. I mean, we sit next to each other for a few minutes, but then we go our own way and we do our own thing. We have the illusion of good friendship without its substance. That's not a blanket statement, obviously, but I think there is more truth there than not. We also need spiritual warmth. We need good fellowship. We need good sharpening. We also see bandits along the way. Verse 12, so we see frightful paths, we see cold nights, and then we see bandits along the way. Look at verse 12, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. This third illustration here pictures ill-intentioned robbers along the path who would come along to take advantage of a lone traveler. Remember the traveler in the story, the Good Samaritan? A lone traveler, right? Right? Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and they they departed and they left him for dead. So you have this lone traveler who because he has no one else around him has no help in time of, of need. And so he's taken advantage of. While a lone ranger is an easy victim, there's safety in numbers. There's safety in numbers. And then Solomon points us, verse 12, to a very well-known passage in the book of Ecclesiastes. 
He says, a, three, four, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Or a cord of three strands is not easily broken. You see, the strength of a three-ply cord was well known in the ancient world. It was common phraseology, uh, just as common as our saying to one another, things like this, uh, you're tough as nails, or that person's as strong as an ox. This terminology here, this three-ply cord, and the strength of it was absolute common phraseology. And so Solomon gives us a fascinating final line to this section dealing with the goodness of companionship. We all need it, more so than we can possibly imagine. You know, we might have thought that Solomon would praise the strength of a two-fold cord, but instead he notes that a three-fold cord is not quickly broken or easily broken. And it's commonly understood that the third cord is God himself. And that a relationship intertwined with God is a three-cord, a three-fold cord that cannot be quickly or easily broken. Do you know him? Savingly? Personally? Individually? Number four, and we'll end here this morning, is the struggle with continuity. The struggle with continuity. Look at verses 13 through 16. Better was a poor, this is kind of a story here, better is a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. That's sad. For he went from prison, this is the young wise man, went from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor, I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people from whom he led. People flocked after this young, wise uh, king. Yet, Solomon concludes, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the struggle with continuity here. The struggle that things would continue as they are. Okay? Solomon's already dealt with that, right? I mean, everything's changing in life. There's a definite progression in the text here this morning. You, you may or may not have caught it. But the progression, I think, goes like this. The greedier you are, the more isolated you get. The more isolated you get, the more susceptible to danger you are. Finally, finally, you're foolish and you're not able to cover your own back and someone comes along behind you and sends you down the chute. Someone replaces you. You see that progression? Greed to isolation, isolation to danger, danger to foolish thinking, foolish thinking, you're replaced. You're replaced. You're yesterday's news. In Solomon's final illustration, a once wise king who, is, who used to be attentive to sound wisdom, he used to give an ear to, to sound wisdom and advice, he no longer listens now. He no longer listens Note again that Solomon uses the word foolish as a descriptor. This is the second time he's done that in this text. Foolish is the person who folds their hands. Foolish is the one who does not listen to sound advice. The king was foolishly, or was foolish precisely because he became wise in his own eyes. When you become wise in your own eyes, you stop looking to the wisdom of others. Solomon said, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for that individual. He became so used to not receiving uh, good, sound advice that he no longer even knew how to take it. And Solomon says that this poor young man who is humble can now surpass him. And that's exactly what happens in the text. The poor but wise young man is a rags to riches story if there ever was one. A man who rose from impoverishment and obscurity all the way to royalty and to the throne. Everyone cheered on the underdog. Everyone rejoiced that the nation once again had wise leadership. That this young, wise leader had now ascended to the throne. But Solomon writes, he says, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with all the youth that, that stood in the king's palace there was no end of all the people. You couldn't even count all the people, the throng of individuals who followed this once imprisoned wise young man who ascended to the throne. 
You see the lesson that Solomon is teaching here? The young man was poor, but he became rich. The old king was rich, but it didn't make him any wiser. And so he just as well may have been poor. The young man was in prison, but he got out and took the throne. While the old king was imprisoned in his own stupidity and lost his throne. You see, wealth and position are no guarantee of success, while poverty and seeming failure are no barriers to achievement. Wealth and position are no guarantee of success. It can all be stripped away, while at the same time, seeming failure and poverty are not barriers to achievement. The key is wisdom. The key is wisdom. And Solomon says, a wise person listens. A wise person listens. But the story doesn't end there. Solomon goes on and says, yet, he concludes here, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. That's the young, wise king. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. You see, the young, wise king who had taken the throne by way of popular demand was no longer popular. He was no longer popular. The generation after him grew up and rejected him. And there's a lesson here for all of us. That lesson is that fame is fleeting and popularity is fickle. Young people, did you hear me? It's not confined to the young generation. There is the desire to be popular and known and seen and magnified in all of us. But hear me and hear me well. Fame is fleeting and popularity is fickle. One day your glory will fade away. One day all of our glory will fade away, and in the end, everyone turns out to be expendable. The old king may be past his prime, but the young upstart won't live in the limelight forever. And so here are the lessons that we learned in the text this morning. Keep watch for evidence of greed in your life. Number two, be content with what you have. Number three, don't try to live life alone. And then number four, don't put your eggs in the basket of popularity. Put them in the basket of wisdom and walk with the Lord.